Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week's exchange is with Annie Mack, who's one of the most widely recognised figures in UK radio. As we touch on in the interview, it could be argued that her weekday show on BBC Radio 1 is the most influential in the world, in that it's a specialist, non-playlisted show that reaches a vast global audience. The show features a wide range of music styles, but Mac's roots are of course in dance music, which is something she emphasises each week with her key Friday night show on Radio 1. We'd actually been trying to arrange the interview for approaching a year, which, when you consider the sheer scope of Mac's different projects these days, perhaps isn't all that surprising. As always, you can hear our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Annie Mac is up next. So a uh, really big one for you last year when you took over Zane's 7pm weeknight slot. For those who aren't kind of familiar with Radio 1 and UK Radio, this is kind of a big deal in that it's the bridge between the kind of daytime playlisted shows and the specialist shows in the evening. So what I wanted to begin by asking you was what was the first thought that came into your head when you were offered the position? The first thing I thought of was, how am I going to do this? Strictly on a, on a logistics level. Like, how am I going to fit it in to what is already a too busy situation? <laughs> uh, so the first one was kind of panic. That was my initial thought. And then I... Um, I kind of thought about the enormity of it of the situation as well and was a little bit overcome and just overwhelmed, I guess. And then I was happy. Mm. And then I went back to panic. <laughs> I assume at that point in time, it's not like you had a daily radio show sized hole in your schedule. Yeah. So, yeah, logistically, it must have been pretty yeah. terrifying, I'd imagine. I mean, the thing is, it was always something that I I had harborings to do. It was always something that in the back of my mind I wanted to do. And I'd had several meetings with the then head of Radio 1, still the head of Radio 1, kind of saying, like, I would like to do more. I would like to kind of be able to get out of this box that you've put me in, which is a great box that I'm having a great time in, this box of electronic music. But, you know, I love all different types of music and I want to have a go at doing that and that a few years before the the kind of late night show had come up the kind of ex John Peel slot the 10 to 1 slot and I remember kind of saying to him I'd, I would have loved that slot and then I didn't get that and then kind of after that I kind of made the point to myself where I was like I just didn't really let myself aspire to more than the what I had which was the Friday and the Sunday which I loved and I kind of really made a point of just throwing myself into those two shows and and everything that came beyond those shows as well my AMP events and all that stuff mm. so uh, things had gone really well and then this show came up and it was like whoa how am I going to do it all and I guess since then I'm still trying to figure it out how did you go about 
figuring that out? How did you make a start on that? I realigned my ambitions, I guess, as a DJ, as a clubbing, touring DJ. Mm. That also happened when I became a parent because there's certain things where I didn't feel comfortable being away for a long time anyway. Like I'm still having situations where I'm figuring out, like just this morning, my manager was like, what do we think about America? You know, what's the plan here? What are we going to do? The reality is, is I, I have a kind of full-time job and my holiday time will be spent touring America and I mm. want to have some holiday time at home. So it's everything's changed yeah. um, in terms of what I was doing and it's a matter of kind of managing what I was doing and making sure that everything we're doing is stuff that I feel really passionate about and stuff that I want to do. And yeah, I think I if you want to do something, you'll find a way to do it. I'd read a quote of yours. I don't know when this was said to you, but you'd said to your boss something along the lines of, I'm not just the dance girl, mm -hmm. you know. Was part of the challenge with this show kind of smashing that preconception both mm. internally and externally to the to the listening public? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing that I think a lot of people would have seen when they saw that I got that show was, oh, well, she's just going to play loads of dance music. Especially, you know, if you come from a world of bands and, and you know, and guitar-based music and you only know me, for being the person who plays kind of rave music on Friday, then people are going to have natural preconceptions. And we really wanted to make sure that they were shattered. And I've made a point in the last kind of eight months of, you know, like that show should do is championing everything. We haven't played loads and loads of electronic music. We've kind of played maybe less electronic music in that slot than, than there was before. Mm. But obviously I still have my Friday night, so I'm still ticking that box and keeping myself happy with being able to play the stuff that I want you on there. But I think now that we're kind of up and running and we will probably put in a little bit more and kind of make sure that it feels more balanced, maybe. Yeah, I guess it makes sense to establish it in yeah. that way. Yeah. So how do you, uh, maybe internally, how do you discuss the show between you? Mm. Or what are its aims, would you, would you say? The show's aims are, I mean... <sighs> I try not to think about the impact that the show has because I, I feel like it has enormous impact. I, I know it has enormous impact mm. on the industry, on the artists that are brought through in the industry. It still is kind of, as you know, the head of music at Radio 1 told me a few weeks ago, you know, the most important kind of alternative music radio show in the world. He would say that. I, I don't know about that, but I know that there's a lot of relevance to it and there's a lot of weight put on it. So the show is to do justice and reflect the best of kind of alternative music that this world has, I guess. And it's making sure that it's fair in terms of, the, you know, the balance of music that we're playing. It's also, from a personal perspective, essential that the music is stuff that I feel passionate about. It's very easy in that show, especially because it's, it's very wrapped up in the music industry and it would be easy to play stuff that people tell you you should play or that people say, this is going to be huge, you should play this, you know, and I think that's the biggest battle for me and has been and will be carrying on is making sure that I have my own gut feelings and I stay true to them because as a broadcaster, I don't feel like you are believable unless you can do that. I imagine it's such a tricky balance because obviously the show is defined, you know, to a great extent by your personal taste, mm -hmm. but if you you know want to indulge in any form of trend forecasting and obviously mm. things are 
closely monitored these days because we can track things in terms mm. of numbers. Like how much does things like trend forecasting play a role mm. in, in what you push through the show and sort of like what's the ratio with the stuff that you're really into? And Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a level with my old shows, you know, I had full autonomy over those shows. You know, I would program them. I would send in the program every week and, and my team would assemble that program. It's not quite like that with this week's show, partly because I just don't physically have the time to program the shows every day. But everything runs past me before it's played and I get the kind of final say, say so on everything. But I do have to be aware of the fact that the show is a much bigger part of Radio 1. It's a much bigger part of the industry than my other shows. And you do have a, I guess, how do I say it? Like, I guess in my last shows, I was entirely subjective. Whereas in this one, I think there has to be a point sometimes where if there's a track that's huge, that's got a massive young fan base, that's selling out, you know, thousands and thousands of tickets in the UK, that's not had any radio play, you know, it's our job to look at that and, and say, right, you know, should we be representing this for the sake of our listeners? Maybe it shouldn't all just be about me. This is a public service situation. So it's about getting the balance right between those two things, you know, about being able to be passionate and believing in yourself as a broadcaster and believing in the music you're playing, but also making sure that the audience are satisfied and that it's not all about yourself to the point where you're being unfair on the audience you know mm. I think with John Peel or someone it was all about him but he had a very late night music show whereas this one is kind of as you said it's the bridge between daytime and nighttime so it's about finding the balance and it's still a balance that I'm trying to find mm, of course and you know obviously without going into any um, specifics do you find yourself in a position where you're playing something that you're just really not fond of never that I'm really not fond of but there'll be stuff that I'm not sure of you know, and what I'll do if there's something that I'm not 100% sold on is I'll say, let's try it. Yeah. So let's give it a go and see how it feels on the radio and see how it sounds. And and then a lot of the time you'll play something and you'll hear it and it will be like, oh, wow, OK, this feels better than, than it did when I listened, you know, last week. And that's the first thing I've had to learn and my team that I work with is to not be too proud ever to do a U-turn. You know, it's so important that you are able to change your mind and change your position on a record in this in this game because if you are too proud to go I was wrong I'm not going to play it then you're you're a mug basically yeah it's kind of cutting off your nose yeah sort of situation I was really interested to know how one goes about putting together a daily radio show Mm -hmm. like talk us through some of the processes and considerations and you know what your day-to-day looks like okay well the way it works at Radio 1 and not all radio stations are similar in Radio 1, I have a producer and I have an assistant producer. And the three of us are are the team. And they will work as the kind of faces of the show for the industry. So they will go and sit for one day a week with lots of what we call radio pluggers, whose job it is to get music on the radio. And they'll be played everything. And then they will then kind of filter that down somewhat to the stuff that they think is relevant for the show. And then myself and they will sit in a room together for an afternoon and go, yes, no, yes, no, maybe, let's play it and see what we think, yes, no. So that's that's how it works. And then we have a kind of big old complicated spreadsheet with um, release dates and impact dates and all that stuff that we work very loosely around, but it's just good to have everything on one piece of paper. And then 
they, this is for the week show, and my producer will then program the shows on a Friday, as in put the tracks in order, and I will come in and look at it and go, I want to put that there and change that there. And kind of mm. on the night, it's always very loose and fluid, which is how I like it, because you want it to feel live and like anything is around the corner. So he kind of puts together the skeleton, and then I will go in and make it my own, I guess. On a Friday... I spent Tuesdays, today was my Friday day, so yeah, I'll go I and I'll spend the morning listening to promos and kind of, again, the pluggers will all send me the, their emails of stuff that they think they, that would work on the show and I'll go through them and I will um, do things like look online at various different places that I kind of go to to see what's being, you know, you look at Beatport and stuff, just see mm. what people are playing and just making sure that you are aware of all the stuff that you should be aware of. And then I'll program that, like, and I'll program that specifically. And then on Thursday, I'll go in and meet my team and we'll maybe make a few tweaks here and there. And then it will be all go on Friday. I just wondered as a team, yeah. how you handle the sheer volume of demand, basically, mm. on your ears. We've talked about the idea of this uh show being an incredible platform for emerging artists and you know making and breaking people so how do you cope with the interest like what safeguards do you have in place or filters it was one of the things like I guess everyone has their own ways of doing it like I remember when I came to radio first and I was an assistant producer and I worked in this office with all the specialist radio DJs and you used to see John Peel every Friday like an old kind of postal sack of vinyl and CDs that he'd have around his over his shoulder, like some sort of like indie Santa. And he'd go out and like put it in the trunk of his car and then drive back to his house. And, and then he'd spend all week listening to it and kind of filing it and have his crazy way of, you know, keeping the music. And that to me was the ultimate. You know, that to me is what you want to be doing as a DJ is, you know, being able to go and have that time to listen to everything, write all the letters back to the people who write to you, you know. A, it's not the same anymore because everything's digital and it's like a fucking minefield because yeah. it's so hard to keep track of what's coming in and what's coming out. And So the way I have it now is I have, like a lot of other people, like Pete and stuff will have this as well, where you have a system where I have someone who I trust and who I know and who knows me who will go through everything that gets sent and an electronic music capacity. So everything, every promo. And he will then filter that down to the stuff that he thinks will work for the show. So there's an element of trust for me to him there. Mm. And then he will send me a file every Tuesday, a zip of like, I don't know, 100, 150, whatever tracks, a lot of music. And then I will go through that. And that is basically how feasibly I'm able to do that. Otherwise, I just don't physically have the time if I sat and did it 24 hours a day for seven days a week to listen to everything that comes my way. So I have him on the dance side and then on the, also I have my radio team who gets sent lots of stuff as well. So if they think there's stuff. And then um, I have my assistant producer and producer on the other side who also filter stuff down. But then of course, on top of that, I will be on Pitchfork and on RA or wherever in my own time doing as much as I can because there's nothing that is better than being able to find something yourself personally and being like right I'm going to play that without anyone else telling you about mm, it for sure. so there's that and then you have this kind of I guess like a circle of trusted people who you, I've known for years who might work for a label or who might work for you know anyone or in and around music or just our music fans and their friends it's just very simple like sharing yeah music in the same way friends, anyone yeah and anyone will and it's it's um 
that's kind of how it works, I guess. There's lots of different factors where you get your music, but there is a rough system in place. Mm. Do you feel as though taking on the weeknight shows at all affected how you think about or approach your Friday night show? Mm. Yeah, I guess so. I think there's music that we play on a Monday to Thursday that is of electronic kind of origin that maybe I wouldn't have thought would work on a Friday. But now I'm definitely up for trying to put in sometimes a few more things that I probably wouldn't have played before. I don't know, kind of like trappy stuff. And I mean, I used to, did used to play trappy stuff all the time. I don't know, I guess it's made it a little bit, because I've heard it on the radio in the week, it makes sense to me to be able to hear it on the radio on a Friday. Yeah, I guess so. by its very nature, you're looking more broadly than you ever have done. So mm -hmm. it would make, it make sense to incorporate those things. Yeah. If you're feeling them. Yeah. I mean, your, your Friday night show's really well established at this point. I just wondered, like, you know, thinking back over the years, is there a particular type of energy that you've tried to bring to your show? Is there like an angle or like what's your sort of unique selling point, would you say? Mm -hmm. When I got the show at the very beginning, the aim of the show was for me to be the person on the dance floor and not the person in the DJ booth. That was the kind of original aim because it was very much to be a, a dance show kind of for the people by this person, if you know what I mean. Sure, yeah. Not a, like a big expert of, the, you know, huge superstar DJ. It was kind of the anti-essential mix vibe. You know, we kind of did that and made a big kind of deal of doing the mini mix because it was the kind of antithesis of the big long two-hour essential mix so it was kind of like a, mm. it was kind of fun light-hearted look you did the mini mix right from the beginning right, right? from yeah, the start if I remember yeah. Right, yeah so yeah it was like a fun light-hearted look at dance music and it was supposed to be from the perspective of a fan so it's always been that way on a Friday where it's more about a feeling and how people are feeling and conveying that feeling and that mood rather than going in too much about the kind of finer details of the track in a way that, you know, a music collector would do or, or a specialist DJ would do, you know, talking about labels and mm. and that kind of thing. Because I think on a Friday, a lot of people just turn that show on to feel a certain way. And then when you get later on in the, you know, mix in the show in the last hour and I do a live mix, then I can talk about the labels that I love and that kind of thing. But definitely for the start of the show, the first hour or two, it's just about feeling. And obviously the music can be still great and challenging and interesting but it's not talking quite as much about the details of the music and more just talking about what everyone's doing at the time. And yeah, it's like what they call mood matching mm, in radio. Sure. Yeah. You said that was sort of um, the approach to begin with. Is that something that you can see as like the, the thread all the way up to the present day? Yeah, maybe. Like there's definitely, you can't for one second say that I'm the same person as I was 10 years ago because sure, I am now yeah. a DJ who's playing in front of people all the time. But I still do definitely emphasize the, the more fun side of it on a Friday, I think. And that is kind of a reflection, I suppose, of my personality in that I do, I don't know, I, if I'm at a party, I'm not gonna be the one in the corner talking about labels as much as I would be the one kind of, I don't know, in the kitchen talking about nonsense. <laughs> Have you found over the years that as a radio presenter, you're looking to find your voice in perhaps the same way that a writer or a musician would? Do you feel as though you undertook a similar journey or, or process, if you like? Mm. That's a really interesting way of doing it, and I've never thought of it in that way. Like finding your voice. For me, it's always been the main aspiration, the end game is to to be, as I said, kind of have that 
authenticity and, and sincerity as a DJ. It's finding your voice, it's, it's kind of finding you, you know, so in the same way that you, your Peels and your Marianne Hobbs and stuff, they are a projection of, you know, their shows are a projection of their personalities. That's what it has to be for me. That's the end game. And I know there's different ways of approaching broadcasting. You know, you have your Westwood who is, well, maybe that really was Tim Westwood, I don't know, but he definitely had a, he definitely had a, a kind of a role that he played Charlie Sloth, same thing, you know, it's kind of like a, like a hat that they put on yeah, when they were on air. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, whereas for me, um, the thought of that is exhausting. I, I just want to be able to be to be me. And I think when you are yourself, you can't really like, people can not be into it because they just might not be into your whatever, your personality or the things you find funny or whatever, but you can only be you. And mm. um, I feel like that's a good start. Yeah, I just find it super interesting as someone who's only had limited experience with radio is almost this feeling like you have your normal self and then there's a radio version of yourself yeah. that sort of comes out of nowhere as soon as yeah. the mic's put in front of you. And it's mad. You, I've seen people flip. Like you, they come in and they're like, oh, what's going on? How's it going? They come in and then you turn the mic on and they're like, hi. And it's like, <laughs> where did you come from? <laughs> it's amazing. But yeah, that's what I'm trying not to do that. I think that's the main aim is just to be... The same person. Sort of close the gap. Yeah, like. I mean, yeah. It, it's it's much it's much easier. It's much less, you know, if you're just you, then that's an easier way of approaching everything. And also, I really want people to to believe me on air. I think it's so important. Mm, sure. You know, you want to if you're listening to someone day in day out, you need to believe that everything they say is honest and um, true, and and I think that's very essential. Thinking more specifically about the type of music you push, I personally feel like you're in a really interesting position in that mm. some of the artists you push on the Friday night show, for example, there may be a level where they're sort of rivaling the big EDM acts for how popular they are. Yet at the same time, you're kind of in no way connected to EDM and don't necessarily play stuff that would be labelled as such. I was wondering, do you kind of see yourself as um, an alternative, if you like, to the mainstream narrative that people have been kind of fed over the last few years about what mm. popular dance music sounds like or looks like or feels like? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Not having thought about that too much, I guess that that is what I would see my show as doing, as giving, providing people an alternative with that. And I think I'm very lucky in that there's not very many places where I would be able to do the flagship dance show and have it be alternative, you know, not have to play your Avicis and your whatever. I, I do like consider myself lucky in that I have been able to do that. And I think Radio 1 kind of, they facilitated that because, you know, that what they did is they changed their thing. So they changed their schedule. So now there's an hour of dance anthems before my show starts, which is interesting. So they've put that in and that is all the big mainstream, like most Shazam tracks that week, dance music. And then I'm able to come on at seven and, and kind of do my thing in the way I want to do it. So I'm very, very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. We're just thinking more generally about Radio One. Um, obviously the station has an incredibly long and rich history with dance music. Mm. When you started in 2004, for, yeah, yeah. Correct, yeah, I think from a listener's perspective, or certainly from my perspective, it felt like there was the baton being passed, if you like, to mm. a new generation. Mm. So I wanted to ask, well, firstly, if it felt like that to you, and secondly, how as a station you kind of go about making sure that things do feel fresh and you yeah. are sort of bringing through the next generations of, of DJs. Sure. Yeah, I feel like the baton thing happened, I felt that way when... 
I swapped shows with Pete on the Friday night. So I started off on Thursday, then they moved me to Friday at nine and then they swapped me with Pete and that felt quite a important move um, mm. on their part for, for them to do that for me. And yeah, I think it's Radio One's job, as you said, to kind of make sure that they are kind of dealing with the newest and freshest sounds so they can kind of, again, tick that box that they're, you know, they're there as a public service to do that. And there's various ways of doing that, you know, and I guess it's just making sure that people are there who, you know, have their finger on the pulse, I suppose, um, be that in whatever way. They had a thing a few years ago where the BBC Trust came in and said, you have to have DJs that are young. So I think they made a kind of point of making sure that there was younger faces in, on the station. But in specialist music, there's always been a very rich heritage of them kind of cultivating personalities over products, if you know what I mean. Sure, yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I love Radio 1 so much and BBC in general is that they do invest in personalities and it's what makes it stand out over commercial radio, I think, a lot of the time. You know, you still got Annie Nightingale there. You know, she's still there in the middle of the night from one to four playing all her favourite trap music, which is what she's into at the moment. Mm. And I love Radio 1 for that. I love the fact that John Peel was still there up to when he died. It's not necessarily something that I, I think I, I could or would do. I, I don't know. But it's lovely to know that they cultivate and nurture people, especially in, that, in specialist music in that way. Let's cast our minds back to 2004. So when you when you get this slot, I'd like to know what gets you up to this place. What gets you to the place where you're doing a show on Radio One as, a, at the time, a fairly unknown DJ? Yeah, it's a long journey. <laughs> I'll try and be yet. as brief as possible. I'll try and give you the bullet points. So, okay, Queen's University, Belfast. Grew up in Dublin, but moved to Belfast to go to university. Discovered clubbing, dance music. Worked at a club where I was privy to incredible DJ sets from the likes of Green Velvet and Andrew Weatherall. We're talking about Shine, right? Shine, yeah. 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 Stuart Nord from Slam. You were residents. Some amazing DJs. So I'm a raver, basically, when I'm 19. Then I don't want to get a job. I've started record collecting. I've got my decks. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to... I'm, I'm not ready to kind of get a nine to five yet I want to keep exploring and I discovered Radio 1 so I moved to London or just outside London and went and did a one year course in radio an MA in radio after my degree learned about the kind of I guess the more kind of theory side of radio a lot of the practical stuff too you know learned how to put together a radio show to do a news bulletin to to work basic editing systems and and to present because mm. I did stuff shows on their network and then moved to London and spent two years just working in Wherever I could that had anything to do with radio. So my first job was kind of running this office, which was a radio plugger's office. So um, my job was to kind of put music in envelopes and mail it out to all the radio producers in London to get the music played. It was amazing. It was called The Hub. We had people like Roots Maneuver, Bjork. Yeah, some really incredible people. I did a little bit of plugging. I remember having a crazy day with Roots Maneuver in Kennington once where I had to kind of cover him for an interview. But most of it was just kind of mailing stuff out. And then I got a job in two little radio stations. And then my boss at the time said, 
to the head of Radio 1 at the time, the head of programmes, that he should meet me because she knew how much I wanted to get into radio, which was a very selfless and lovely thing for her to do. Yeah. And uh, I met with him and then he gave me a job behind the scenes. And I worked for two years behind the scenes at Radio 1 working on various different shows, well, the same show with various different DJs. And then I went from being the assistant producer on Zane's show, which I did for about a year, to having my show on a Thursday. That was quite a jump because I went from working kind of full time as an assistant producer to having one two hour show a week and just being completely lost. Didn't know what to do with myself, basically. And there was quite a fortuitous set of circumstances that led you to get the show is that is that mm. right something along the lines of you were keeping the fact that you were doing radio presenting yeah. uh, elsewhere kind of a secret because there was this line of thinking where if you wanted to present you shouldn't produce yeah. everyone I'd met up to that point I'd met kind of three different exec producers at Radio 1 before I met the guy who uh, my boss introduced me to but they'd all said kind of you need to know what you want to do here you know, and if you want to get into Radio 1 in this way, you, you're you never going to be a presenter. You Was it just that in. that wasn't an established path Yeah, I think or so. Yeah. Mark and Lard had done it. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were the only people. So they were just like, it's not it's not likely. I think they were, you know, they were okay, discouraging yeah. and they were like, we need to know that you're fully dedicated to wanting to be an assistant producer here. You know, we don't want you to think they're just going to get in to be a presenter. Right, okay, that um, makes sense. And I would have been at that point happy to be a producer for the rest of my life, but I had been, and I still was presenting for another station. And um, we had a show meeting and the guy, the other guy who was a producer on the show, we were waiting and there was a computer linked up to um, a big kind of TV screen in the boardroom and he Googled my name and all the list of my shows that I was doing came up and everyone was like... you were trying like, to keep... <laughs> everyone was like, what's that? <laughs> But luckily, you know, my boss at the time was in the room and saw it and was like, oh, well, you never told me that. You know, let's see what we can do for you. And, you know, the first thing that happened was like, Namone was sick at Glastonbury and I had to go and do some kind of news piece at Glastonbury where I did, you know, ran around and kind of said what was going on. And then I ended up doing iDance for a show and then I ended up presenting this show called One World, which was a late night kind of alternative world music show. Not even presenting it as my own, but just, you know, reading links i see yeah and then from that i got my show so i guess in the first couple of years you were working on the zane show, show you said also steve lamack is that yeah, right steve um, lamack colin murray and zane and zane that was right and um i'd read that you were also a big fan of uh, marianne hobbs massive um, what did you take away from these individuals what did you kind of learn what were the key like takeaways from those first mm. couple years yeah i'm, I'm so grateful for those years it's given me so much confidence in understanding how a radio show works and, and how it works from every perspective. I'm very conscious of, you know, what the other people have to do because I've done it myself and I'm really grateful for that. But yeah, so I worked on the same slot for th two years. It started off being Steve Lamack's slot and uh, he's very methodical and journalistic in his approach. He was, you know, got this crazy brain where... He's just he's just so, so knowledgeable, quite serious about his, you know, the way of presenting. And, um, you know, I would do his notes, his script notes and he, you know, he'd correct them. And he's very kind of he's quite like, yeah, as I said, quite journalistic in his approach. Mm, that um, definitely came across very, I think, on his show. Yeah, very measured. You know, he'd always know what he was going to say before he said it. You know, I felt at the time. Yeah. So I learned a lot from him. 
And then after him came the absolute opposite, which was Colin Murray. So basically Radio 1 were trying to get Zane for ages and XFM wouldn't let Zane go. So there was a six-month period of a kind of contractual battles where Colin Murray came and stepped in. And Colin Murray now does, I think he does like poker stuff on telly and like American football. He's gone into sport commentary. But he was always this kind of very wacky guy who wanted to kind of shock and take risks and he wanted, you know, to cause controversy. So he came at it from a completely different thing and he'd have like mad, you know, silly feature titles and he just liked having fun. So that was another whole different approach to that show. Yeah. And then Zane came, you know, that kind of in a way changed a lot of how specialist DJs at Radio 1 looked at how to present because very basic first thing he did was he stood up and everyone else sat down. And Radio 1 at the time had like like wooden desks like this, which were unmovable. So as soon as we got new studios, the first thing they did was make the desks hydraulic so that you were able to move them up and down. And everyone was watching Zayn because, you know, Chris Moyles was watching him, Westwood was watching him. The first interview Zayn did was a, an interview with Eminem. He went to America. And obviously, Westwood was not very happy about that because Eminem was his territory. Sure, sure. So Zayn made a bit of a splash. So it was interesting to see that. It felt really exciting being part of his team and really exciting being able to launch this highly anticipated radio show from the beginning. And the way he presented was like nothing I'd ever seen. He came at it from a very technical approach. You know, his energy was in like insane, like this kind of hyperactive energy that he just kind of spilled out of his mouth. The way he worked the desk, you know, he brought in a chaos pad and he'd put effects on at the end of all the songs that he'd do. He would put reverb on the end of all his tracks and kind of mix the show like... Like a club DJ would, mm, I guess. Yeah, like making know? the links between yeah, the explicit or something. Every, yeah. I, one of my jobs would be to always burn off every track onto a CD so that he'd be able to live loop them instead of putting a bed in. You know, just loop the end of the track and talk and then take it off loop. And so he was, you know, I learned so much of him from that element of a completely different way of, of kind of a perspective on specialist radio. Yeah. Thinking a bit more broadly about the general health, if you like, of, of UK dance music back in 2004, how do you reflect on that sort of then versus now? Like, what mm. would you say have been the kind of key changes that you've observed in your time at Radio 1? Oh, my Jesus. <laughs> um, OK, well, let's think about what was happening back then. Back then, there was uh, the Dream Team with the big garage show. So it still would have been in. Yeah, yeah it still yeah, would have been. Yeah. Um, Obviously, have Fabio and Groove Rider. We had Giles. We had, we still had the Breeze Block, and Pete was was Lord of the Dance, and still is, I think. But EDM hadn't didn't exist yet. Dance music hadn't become this big commercial commodity like it is now, I guess. Also, I guess David Guetta happened, and he kind of brought fused these two worlds of kind of hip hop and R and B to dance music. That had a big effect on making dance music a big thing in America. I guess the difference is back then dance music still was not pop music. Like in, in a bit, you know, you had your, I guess you had your Basement Jackses and your Chemical Brothers and stuff, but it feels like now it's so normal to hear a 4 4 beat on the back of any sort of pop song. It's not an alternative thing. Mm. I feel like dance music has really become ubiquitous as pop music. That's a big change, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Thinking about Basement Jacks as the example, they made mainstream tracks, but it didn't feel like it was the sort of thing you'd get in your mom's car and yeah. here necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And what I find even more interesting is where it's going to go. 
of what's going to happen. You know, is it all going to go underground? Is it all going to implode? Is it all going to pop? You know, I did a series of documentaries for Channel 4, you know, where I kind of followed superstar DJs around. And I just found it really fascinating because, you know, we, we spoke to Carl Cox and we spoke to Norman Cook and spoke to Pete. Tong, Tiesto, and all these people who are kind of first generation, you know, mm, so they were there yeah. from the very beginning, Carl and Pete anyway, and Norman. That You know, you've seen their careers peak and and now it's like they're kind of in their 50s and it's like, well, how far is it going to go? You know, how, what, you know, what's it going to be? It's still such a relatively young genre of music. Um, yeah, I mean... If you, if you know, if you count from electronic, you know, obviously you could start from disco, I suppose, if you wanted, but... If you count from, I don't know. Yeah, no, what I was going to say is if, you know, we think about it and label it as dance music, the mm. first wave of people, figures mm. connected to that, haven't stopped. No, they're still yeah, they're going. They're still going, yeah. Yeah. So I just find it fascinating. I wonder, will it all, you know, will it all implode, especially in America where, you know, you've got your Vegas and that kind of thing in the last five years. It's purely for money. You know, those people are not stupid. They know that dance music puts bums on seats and sells tickets. So you've got this situation where... You know, dance music is selling out stadiums and selling out all those huge venues in, in Vegas. And at some point that's going to stop. And and it's like, you know, David Copperfield will be back or Elton John or whoever, you know. It's how long is this going to last? Sure. You know, and then is it all going to go completely back underground? And if it is, how exciting is that? Just start again. Yeah. Have you found yourself in some pretty crazy types of situations with gigs, the likes of which you were just describing? Yeah. You know, have you been playing those stadium size shows? And I mean, I've kind of always shied away from them to a point where I, because I feel like a mug. I just, I don't know. I don't know how, I feel like you have to be so like, so much of a performer. And Theatrics, that's another, another yeah. thing that's happened, you know, in dance music is that DJs have become rock stars, especially in America. You know, every time you look at an Instagram of Diplo or A-Track, they're standing on their decks, you know, and it's kind of like, that's just how it is now. It's, it's seen to be something where you have to perform. And obviously there's a whole different world of that where people, you know, in the techno world where you're not expected to do that, of course. But in that mainstream kind of EDM way, it's become way more than just... DJing and I don't know like just today I was asked to play on the main stage of EDC Vegas and I was just like I don't think I can be that guy I don't think I could I think I'd hate every second of it yeah and it, it's kind of knowing what your limits are you know last year I pushed it the furthest I pushed it I kind of got a new agent and he was like the thing is with AMP is that no one ever really knows how many tickets you're selling because it's always you on a lineup sure and he said I want to see what where we can go with you so we, we did some main stages, which was absolutely terrifying for me. But in retrospect, a really fulfilling and interesting and exciting experience. But even that is a main stage in the UK. I don't know how I feel about doing a big EDM festival in America. Where do um, you feel happiest playing? A small, sweaty box club where people can't see me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has that always been the case? I think it's just when you're at your most comfortable, you know, when you can... You can just get lost in the music and get lost in what you're doing. And I've always felt very self-conscious, people staring at you. You know, people always ask you the question of what's easier, radio or DJing? You know, in radio, you are performing, talking to whatever, like up to a million people. But I find DJing in front of 2,000 people much more scary because I'm physically on show and I feel mm. self-conscious for that. Yeah. I guess 
even if you've been doing it for decades, the idea of radio is in some way abstract because although you will know that there are potentially a million people listening, it's can't it must see be, yeah, you can't see them exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes you can, you, you know, you see the text rolling in and then, but even that, it never really feels real. Yeah. You know, it's weird. I still get surprised when people say, oh, yeah, I listen to you. On the radio. I don't know. It's just you, you kind of get into this bubble and you do it every week and then because you can't hear yourself on the radio. So you can't hear yourself when you walk into the off license and they're playing your show. So you never really get that experience because it's always live. Tell us about AMP, Animat Presents, that you mentioned there, because um, I guess at this point it's kind of a huge umbrella term mm. for you. So I wondered why you kind of took the decision to house all your different projects under under this one term and like mm. uh, you know what were the origins of that the origins were very simple at the start you know when i told you about that point of going from a full-time job to doing a two-hour week radio show started getting booked professionally for gigs because i was a radio and dj and that's what happens you get a platform people are interested they want to see what you like in the club so I was DJing a lot, traveling a lot, kind of on my own, going up and down the country, you know, staying over in Newcastle, spending Sunday, getting home or whatever, and just feeling a bit like it was lonely. And said to my agent at the time, like, do you reckon we can have a situation where I bring people or we do it with other people that I know and that I want to play with? And that's how it began. And the very first AMP thing that we had on a regular basis was in room three at Fabric. And um, we had a mad lineup. We had Paul Epworth DJing. We had David Holmes. It was our first ever AMP oh, really? lineup. It's not mad. <laughs> and then, it, yeah, it grew. I kind of got to the age of about 30, so I was about kind of four years in. And I realised that it was becoming something bigger. You know, mm. these things, you don't really think about it, but like after a while in dance music, a lot of people end up having their own brands, more and more so nowadays. You know, you have your la people will have labels or people will have event series or whatever. So you end up inadvertently becoming kind of a business person where you're making these decisions. Sure, yeah. And that's kind of what happened. And I liked the element of learning. I like learning new things and learning how to, I like the challenges of, of doing stuff. And yeah, it just, I guess it just grew and grew and other things started happening within it. The compilation came along and that felt like a very natural other thing to do within it. Most recently, we've tried to do this other strand of events called AMP Collected to reflect the fact that it's not all about kind of banging club tunes. Sure, yeah. And that was originally there to reflect the Sunday night radio show I did, which was much more mellow. It's now just become like a basically a showcase event series where we put on a bit of everything, but put it on really kind of early. And it's at the ICA, which is a really lovely kind of different venue, I guess. Sort or of what a, people would associate me with. Yeah, sure. In terms kind of playing, nice left turn. playing Coco, yeah. And a festival. That seems and, oh, like yeah. a, a oh, crazy yeah. decision, yeah. given everything we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, the thing is about the festival is that it is obviously hugely time-consuming, but I'm learning now about how to do things, and I'm learning that I can't do it all myself. So, for instance, this year, whereas last year we kind of creative directed it ourselves. You know, I was kind of drawing diagrams of how I want the stages to look. And this year I have someone who I trust and who I love and who uh, everything about their kind of artistic vision. And now she's creative directing it with me. So it's about like getting people you trust and getting them to work with you and on projects. So Lost and Found is like a massive deal, but it's not like as bad as you'd think it was in terms of running a festival because there's a massive team behind it. You know, all the Whereas Project lot who kind of run the logistics side of it are amazing. So I just kind of go in and oversee it and make sure that it feels like a kind of projection of AMP. 
and obviously kind of do a big part in the lineup as well. I wanted to just finish up by asking you more broadly about mm. radio and radio in 2016. How optimistic at this point in time do you feel about the future of your chosen medium? Uh, how do you view the potential changes in the landscape? You know, do you have predictions? Do you have fears? Like, how does it look and feel for you? Mm. I mean, I just find it all so interesting at the moment. I've never felt like the industry is in such a state of flux as it is now. It's really exciting. It's challenging because we've never had so much competition where I'm standing in terms of being part of BBC Radio 1. And also the way people consume radio is just so different. It's not like you just go and turn the box on in the corner of the kitchen. It's the very definition of radio is changing, mutating all the time. So it's mad and I don't know what the future is going to hold. I do think the likes of Radio 1 is, is very much an institution. It's something that people trust and they know and they have a, a long history with. It's something that people have grown up with. It's an intrinsic part of UK culture. And I think for that reason, it will last, you know, quite a long time. But who knows? You know, maybe when I'm 55, I will be a director of a streaming service or, you know, a director of curation on spot. Who knows? It's And that's what I mean. It's like, where will it go? And I don't know. I'm finding it really interesting. The Beats thing has been fascinating to watch that launch and to watch the kind of all the noise and hype around that launch. Um, to Spotify obviously starting all their own, you know, content in terms of radio content. So, yeah, I'm finding it really interesting and I don't know where it's going to where it's going to end up, but as long as I can be playing and selecting music and putting one song after the other in some way or some uh, format, I think I'll be happy. I think it's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank <laughs> you.